You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. I, um, you know, I knew that planting a church, starting a church would be a difficult task, but pastoring can be a surprisingly difficult task. I mean, you expect challenges and you expect setbacks in anything that you do, right? But I have to be honest, I was not prepared for the spiritual, emotional, relational weight that it would be. And over the last few years, it was often these letters, First and Second Timothy and also Titus, that kept me going, trusting God and seeking to carry on the fight, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of not knowing, even in the midst of all the different things. This is what God, God's word, this is what God has called me to, I would say to myself. How many men have gone before me in Christ, pastoring in the face of much, much more difficult circumstances? I would ask myself and I would answer, many, so many. And so I would soldier on. Now, preaching through these letters and reflecting on the past five years, I realize that there was something here that I was missing, something that I missed before. I had part of it, but maybe not all of it. Maybe I had most of it, but there was a key ingredient that I just wasn't seeing at the time. We would expect, as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, being in prison, calling Timothy to endure hardship in his own uh, uh, call that he has in Ephesus, we would expect him to have very low morale. 
Timothy, woe is me. I'm in prison. I didn't do anything wrong. I was just trying to obey Jesus. And yet, here I am. But this is what we're called to do. This is what the Lord, and He saved us. So let's trudge on, trudge on, Timothy. And someday, finally, we'll die and we'll be relieved of this burden. Try to make that as dramatic as possible. (laughs) But that's not Paul's attitude as he writes, is it? I mean, certainly he's honest about the difficulties. He doesn't pretend like it's, you know, wonderful to be in chains. He doesn't pretend like Timothy's going to have everything just super easy. Everything's going to go exactly how he intended it to the first time he tries. No, he doesn't act like that. But he also is incredibly hopeful. You see, hard work, when done by faith in God's promises and in Christ's victory, is hopeful. And I saw, too often, I have seen, the duty, but duty without faith and hope becomes drudgery, right? And so at times, I'm just a little moment of confession, if you will, at times became a battle of attrition. We'll just see how long I can last. Let's just see how long I can last. If I could just, if I could just last and be faithful to the end, and maybe, maybe a couple of my kids will be faithful, and maybe a few of my friends, oh, Lord willing, will be faithful, and we'll just see who's still there at the end. And it becomes a battle of attrition. And I have to be honest, I recognize that that, attitude, if you will, affected the church negatively. My perspective, my attitude affected the church negatively. I may have said the things that Paul is saying to Timothy, but I did not say them the way that Paul is saying them. I did not say them with the tone, with the hope, with the faith that Paul is communicating to Timothy. And it turns out that matters. And so that begs the question, what is our situation? What is your situation? We are all in a spiritual war, right? I mean, Paul has made that very clear to this church in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, implied you are wrestling with something, We uh, wrestle with uh, or against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual war going on. And we know, we know that Christ will win someday. And we know that we are to soldier on in that battle But have we been 
but have we been put in a losing position? And this is the question I want you to think about today. Have we, right now, been put in a losing position? How and with what attitude ought we to soldier on? It's not just soldiering on that we're supposed to do, but there's a way in which we are to do it. And so Paul uses this analogy of a soldier in this passage, and with that, I want to explain four, four aspects of the soldier, four aspects of how we soldier on. First, I want to explain the soldier's strength, and then the soldier's duty, and then the soldier's discipline, and finally, the soldier's outcome. All right. The soldier's strength then. There are, in the first half of this passage, there are two commands right at the outset that kind of uh, capture verses 1 to 7. These two commands are to be strengthened. You see that in the very beginning of verse 1. And to entrust, and you see that in verse 2. And these commands are a result of what comes before you see at the very beginning of verse 1, it says, you then. Paul says, you then. Then. In other words, because of what I said before, because of all of this first chapter of this letter, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be strengthened, and I want you to do some entrusting. Timothy is to be strong and to use that strength for that particular task. And his task, it's particular to his role. But as we'll see, all of us have some duty in this world, in this war. All of us are soldiers, and all of us are to be strong. But how can we be strong when chapter 1 details so many problems, right? So many problems there. How can we be strong when there are fearful circumstances, when people are in jail, when there are embarrassing situations in the face of suffering, when brothers leave us alone in our most difficult moment? How are we to be strong in that? Where do we find strength? Well, he says that the strength comes by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In fact, if you remember, Paul described something very similar in his first letter to Timothy about himself. He says there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 and 13, I thank him who, gave, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Though Paul was an opponent of the church and of Christ, he was made a faithful servant by the strength given him by Christ. So the strength is not so much a strength of our own self, but a strength we are given. You see, there's some debate about this first verb here, this, this verb to be strengthened, whether it ought to be translated as an active verb or a passive verb. The ESV, uh, as we read it, translates it passively as be strengthened. 
But the NIV and the NASB, they translate it actively uh, and they translate it, be strong. So in the NASB, it says, you then, my child, be strong by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So which is it supposed to be? Well, I kind of have come to the decision that it's not so important. It's not so important because if it is meant to be, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, do we think that there is any other result of this being strengthened than being strong? Is it, is it oh, be strengthened in Christ Jesus and hopefully you'll be strong? Uh, be strengthened in Christ Jesus and then don't do anything that takes strength. No, of course not. If, it's, if we take it as the NASB and the NIV do and we say, well, it's be strong. Well, what, what, strong in what? Strong by the grace of Christ Jesus our Lord. Strong by the unmerited favor and his blessing upon you. And so where is that strength coming from? Well, it's coming from not me, but Christ. See, I think, I think we, we become uh, sort of mutually exclusive. If I'm to be strong, then that strength must be from me. I must do it. It's, it's about me or, or, or Christ. But actually, what we see in Scripture is these things actually come together, that God actually strengthens us and then says to us, now be strong. Take courage and be strong. We see it all throughout Scripture. What God demands of us, it turns out He supplies. And so, it is a grace of strength that's given to us in the giving of the Spirit of Christ. And we saw that in chapter 1, verse 7. Paul's already told him. He's, it turns out, if you go back to chapter 1, it's not just problems you see there, but actually you see him already weaving through the strength that Timothy has in God. And so it's a grace of strength that's given to us by the giving of the Spirit of Christ. It's a grace of strength that's given to us before the ages began, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 9. It's a grace of strength that's able to keep us and to keep the work that we do, he said in chapter 1, verse 12. And so this grace of strength is a grace of strength that every believer has. You can be strengthened in Christ Jesus. You can be strong in Christ Jesus. He has given you strength, Christian. Will you use it? Will you take it up? Or will we assume we're in a losing position? So you don't, you won't know the strength that Christ has given you for his work. Until by faith in Him, you put your hand to His work. You ever have that happen? You think, you go to do something and you think, I don't know. And then, and then you go, oh, I didn't know the strength that I had. You don't know the strength that you have until you actually attempt to apply that strength. And I think for most of us as Christians, we don't realize the strength we have for the work that God has given us because assuming we don't have it, we never do the work. <laughs> well, I don't have it. I just don't. And so we never try. And we never realize that maybe we actually could pop the top on that pickle jar, right? 
we actually have the, the strength to do it. Not in ourselves, but through Christ. And what is this that we are to be strong to accomplish? Well, that brings us to the soldier's duty, this, in, this entrusting. The duty for Timothy is to entrust to faithful men what Paul had entrusted to him. Uh, it is that which had been entrusted to Paul. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 12. He, he said that. And then also entrusted to Timothy. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 14. And we also uh, heard him talk about that back in uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20, right? He talked about this deposit that was entrusted to him. And it's essentially the work of teaching the gospel of God's kingdom. Teaching, as Paul says, all you've heard from me, this truth of which the church is to be a pillar and buttress, we found out in 1 Timothy. And Paul's saying, yeah, I know since I wrote 1 Timothy, things have looked like they've gotten worse since I wrote the last letter to you. But in fact, actually, you're fine. Apply yourself to the work. Do what I've entrusted to you, entrusted also to other people. It's a truth entrusted, he says, in the presence of many witnesses. I think Paul here is intending to convey that what Timothy passes on should be in line with the sound words that Paul passed on to him. The words that, that, that many people heard. That's the standard in Paul told us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that his words were also in accord with the words of Christ and in accord with godliness. It's not a generic work of teaching that Timothy has. It's a teaching of a very specific standard. Now, what stands, if you will, as a witness for us today? Well, it's God's Word. God's Word is our standard. God's Word is the witness by which we compare what is to be entrusted to faithful men. That's what tests the faithfulness of what is being taught. That's not to say that we will never get something wrong, right? That's not to say that if we entrust to faithful men something and it's just not actually perfectly, you know, like, who, who 100% is, is theologically just precise? We're all going to get to heaven, and God's going to go like, yeah, you missed that one. Yeah, that was good, that was good. No, you missed on that one. But the point isn't getting it 100% right. The point is that when we are confronted with the standard of the word, what are we going to do? Are we going to conform the word to us, or are we going to conform ourselves and our teaching to the word? That's what matters. The Word is a mirror in which we check everything that we teach and everything that we do. We even check ourselves when the attitude in which we do it is wrong. And that's what I needed to do. And so what then is this duty? This duty is to entrust this work to faithful men. But this statement, friends, is not made in a vacuum, is it? It's not just like some sort of generic, hey, entrust that to faithful men, because that sounds like a good idea. Faithful men is better than not faithful men. No, we just saw in verses 15 to 18 that this is an incredibly personal thing for Timothy. Paul brings up precise individuals who either have not been faithful or who have been faithful, right? 
Timothy is aware of those situations, and he is to identify. It's as if, it's as if Paul is saying to him, look, you know the people who are faithful and you know who aren't. Don't, don't give this work to unfaithful people. Don't put them up as teachers. Don't promote them. Don't, don't. No, only faithful men. And oh, by the way, implied, Timothy, I believe you are a faithful man because I entrusted this to you. How encouraging would that be to Timothy? And so I think there's a particular and a general application for us, particularly the question is whether it is a priority for us to entrust that work to the next generation of men. Is it important to us that we entrust the work of, of the, the gospel work, the gospel teaching and preaching to the next generation of men who will be faithful to that? But not all of us are going to be uh, Timothys, right? Not all of us will be the one that's doing the work of passing that on. Not all of us will be faithful men. So what is the church's role in that particular task? What is, what, how, does this, how is this for all of us, right? Well, I think first... The first thing is this, we got to identify faithful men. We got to be able to identify faithful men and then support and submit to them in their ministry. See, often the church gives this, this work, pastoring or whatever, to talented and charismatic men. We give this work to people the world would pick to do it, but not the ones the Bible calls faithful. Oh, don't get me wrong, we want them to be faithful, but when we go about the picking, it turns out that's not actually the highest priority, if we're really honest with ourselves. Paul has already told us where to look for faithful men. He told us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, did he not? He said, faithful men are faithful to Christ and live like it. Faithful men are faithful to the word and teach like it. He said, faithful men are faithful to their families and lead like it. Those are faithful men. But, but here's where the rubber meets the road. The average Christian is dumbfounded by such a high percentage of pastoral failures, right? We're dumbfounded. How does this happen that so many pastors get, get, blow out their ministry from, through moral failure? How is this going on? Why does this keep happening here in the United States? Why does this continually become a reoccurring thing? And we're dumbfounded, even jaded about it. And then we're also upset when so few Faithful men stay in ministry. They, we talk like we want a faithful pastor. We talk like we want someone faithful to the word, to the church, faithful to Christ, faithful to their family and to their wife. But unfortunately, the average Christian's actions incentivize something else. And church, this is what we need to realize. We need to come to terms with. For, for at least a generation, as long as I have been alive, we have incentivized something else in the church. And then we're surprised by the results. In reality, we sacrifice a little faithfulness if we get a little flash. 
We want faithfulness right up until that faithfulness interrupts our preference. Right up until that faithfulness uh, gets in the way of what we want. Oh, I love the faithful pastor, but what I really want is that pastor to do the thing I wanted him to do. And when he doesn't, then I'll go and I'll find one that does. What do you expect to get then? We want the pastor to be faithful, but not faithful to their calling to point out my unfaithfulness. Not that far. Oh, be faithful in the pulpit. Please be faithful in the pulpit. But when you see unfaithfulness in my life, don't be faithful to call it out, particularly and personally and specifically. That, that's mean. How dare you? And so we bounce off to some other church where we can fade into whatever and no one's going to be faithful to that task. No one's going to call us out and we can do what we want. And then we wonder, we wonder why there's so many unfaithful men put in positions of leadership. We, we've done it. Church is what we need to, we need to just come to terms with that and repent. We've done it. So don't be shocked when the pastors we hire and celebrate do what they want rather than what God wants. And faithful pastors get worn out from all the criticism and find different jobs to do. All right. I'm off that soapbox for a second. The particular task of training faithful men is an important uh, and a particular element to the task of the Great Commission that, that we've been given by Christ. But, but generally, we all help make faithful disciples, right? And so there's a, there's a general sense in which everyone is a soldier with some task in this war. And the roles may vary, but the goal that we have is the same. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. And we even see this here in Timothy's life. We've seen it so far in this letter. We, we see the critical roles that, that his mother and his grandmother had in, in, in his own life. They baptized Timothy. They discipled him. They taught him to obey, right? They did these things. Unfortunately, sometimes we think that to be you know, important in this, we must be the Timothy. I'm... Make, Please, I, I, I have to, in order to be important, I have to be able to be one of the faithful men. Well, it's just not the case. It's just not the case. You don't have to go across an ocean or have some sort of title to be used by God. Sometimes going in the Great Commission turns out to be just down the hallway. Sometimes going in the Great Commission turns out to be a walk across the street to a neighbor's house. Sometimes the title that God wants you to take up and do faithfully is mother or father or grandpa or brother in Christ, and that's the task that God has given you in this war. 
You know, if everyone in, in the World War II tried to be Dwight D. Eisenhower, it wouldn't have gone very well, right? So faithfulness is both depending and doing. We have to depend on Christ for our strength. We cannot depend on ourselves, but, but only by the power of God in the grace of Christ through the work of the Spirit. And that includes trusting that where He has us and what He's put in front of us is the work that we are to do and actually applying ourselves to it, actually doing it. You can't claim to depend on Christ and fail to actually do the thing. So, how are we to do it? Well, that brings us to the soldier's discipline. And this whole uh, point can really be wrapped up in the first three words of verse 3. Share in suffering. Share in suffering. We are to suffer as soldiers. We like to think that if, if it came to it, I'd be willing to die for Christ. We like to think that, right? You know, if it came to it, I'd, 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 man, I hope I'm, I'm that person. I'd like to think that I'm that person who, when they're tying them to the stake, that I'm singing hymns to the Lord as they set me on fire. I'd love to think that that's the case. But it makes no sense to think that I would do that if I'm not willing to get up 30 minutes earlier and read my Bible today. Right? Like, like why would I think that I would have the discipline to sing hymns to the Lord as they're tying me to the stake to burn me if I'm not willing to sing hymns to the Lord with my children at home? We just have to come to terms with, with this reality. The discipline isn't, you, you don't, the reason that those men and those women were able to do that is not because they, were, they had some sort of grand moment, but because in every little detail, they trusted Christ. When no one was looking, they trusted Christ. When no one was looking, they, they were soldiering on in faith and hope that God does what He says He will do. And that just happens to be the agenda for today for them. And so when we read, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ, those are the kinds of things that come to our mind, this extreme persecution. But a soldier, a good soldier suffers long before he's shot at, right? A good soldier suffers long before he's ever shot at. Paul is in prison. Timothy is not. Yet these words are to Timothy from Paul. The picture of suffering here is not limited to persecution, and we need to expand our horizons there, nor is it even primarily here about persecution. The examples that Paul gives are not just about a soldier, but about an athlete and a farmer. They're suffering. They're suffering uh, the farmer's suffering is the early morning chores and the late night emergencies, right? The athlete's suffering is turning down normal conveniences and comforts and replacing them with hard workouts and difficult competitions. That's the athlete's suffering so that he's prepared for the, 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 the race when the race comes. 
You know, it's like that old, uh, and it's almost cliche, those commercials or those different things that they say, you know, I didn't, I, didn't win this, I didn't win this game in the last few seconds. I won it with every practice I've practiced in my whole life, you know. And you're like, oh my goodness, there you go again. But it's actually sort of true, right? The soldier's suffering necessitates a willingness to be persecuted, but doesn't necessitate persecution. He must be willing to get shot at if it comes to that and if that's his assignment, but the assignment that he has isn't to get shot. His suffering comes long before. It's in the patient endurance in a duty that, that can be unpleasant even when not in direct combat, right? Uh, the soldier has to be trained in boot camp. He has to be accustomed to life in the foxhole and life in the trench, Again, this isn't suffering for suffering's sake, but he must often trade creature comforts to pursue intentional purposes. And that, my friends, is what God is calling every single Christian to do, to grow in the discipline of a soldier in our life if we're going to survive this spiritual war we're in today. I, I found it very interesting and provocative, um, Calvin John Calvin, in his, in his commentary on this passage, he, he gave two reasons men fail in this task of suffering like a good soldier. And I, and I, and I, thought, it, I thought it interesting. I thought it fit with, with the examples that Paul gives. So I want to kind of share them with you. Um, the first reason he says is, he says the first reason that, that, that men fail in this task is because they're so effeminate that they shrink from warfare. When men aren't leading their wife and children, it's often because they are acting like wives and children. They can't figure it out because they expect it to, uh, they expect it's supposed to be easy and just come to them naturally, right? And this is what we do. We just expect things to, to, like it'll just be easy and come to me naturally. I'll just want to read my Bible today. I'll just want to pray. I'll just want to do this. There won't be any pressure. There won't be any fear. There won't be any difficulty. There won't take any, you know, effort. That's not life. And it's not life in Christ. It turns out, sometimes you've got to set your alarm clock. And when it goes off and you turn it off and you go, no, no, I'm not going to hit the snooze today. I'm going to actually get up. And sometimes that's where it starts. And listen, I'm not, I'm not talking about like effeminate in trivial ways like, oh, I get weepy-eyed at a movie or, you know, I don't, I don't lift weights or something. Like, that's just that's trivial stuff. I mean, I mean that, that oftentimes we fail in this task, men fail in this task of suffering like a good soldier because we lack the backbone to do what's right and we lack the discipline in our own religious practices and too many men allow themselves to be propped up publicly by their wives as if they are leading, when in reality, they're letting their wives drive the spiritual ship of their family. And you've got to stop it. We've got to change that. On the other side, though, there's a second reason. There's, a, there's a, 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 another ditch that we can fall into. There are those, Calvin says, who only know how to contend haughtily and fiercely. That's all they know. 
rather than learning patient endurance. There's the guy, there's the soldier who all he knows how to do is charge the hill, guns a-blazing, even if it doesn't make any sense to do that at this current moment, right? That's the only, he goes from zero to ten. And in Luke 21, 19, Jesus, of his followers doing gospel ministry in the midst of persecution, he says this, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Sometimes the discipline is just waiting in the foxhole a little bit longer until it's the right time. Sometimes it's just inching forward every day a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and sticking in it. One cannot be a soldier or an athlete or a farmer however he likes, right? The, the, the patient endurance, I think, of the farmer illustration is so good because you don't, you don't do a bunch of hard work today and tomorrow a crop just pops up. Oh, I'm glad I worked that 12-hour day yesterday. Now I've got my crop. It's like, no, you, every day you're going out and watering. Every morning you're going out and watering. Every morning you're going out and watering. And the whole time you're going, boy, I hope this crop comes up. Because <laughs> this is a lot of work. So how are we to do this? Well, how can we be neither effeminately weak or haughtily aggressive? Paul gives us three illustrations. I just want to share each one of these with you uh, briefly. The, the soldier's discipline, it means, it means he's single-minded. He doesn't get entangled, it says, in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one he, who enlisted him. He is single-minded and he is seeking Christ's approval above all else. Every day, are you thinking, what does Christ approve of? What does Christ approve of today? What would Christ approve of in this? What would Christ approve of in the way that I am uh, uh, making dinner in the way that I am working at the office, in the way that I am, in what I'm doing with Saturday morning or whatever, what, what does Christ approve? That's the single-minded track that we have to be on. Listen, if we're, only con- if we're only concerned about the rules, right, the rules that he lays out, I'm following Christ's rules, I'm following God's rules, then we will find loopholes and excuses for seeking our own wants while keeping those rules. And in reality, our hearts are actually not seeking God's approval, it's seeking our own things, and then we're are excusing that by saying, but I'm, but I'm following the rules. I didn't break any of these rules. But that's not what God wants from you. He wants you, He wants His soldiers to seek His approval in all things. To be after what He wants, what Christ wants. To go, man, the minimum is not enough. Because I love my Lord and I know what He has for me is better than what I want for myself. The athlete also has a kind of discipline. Paul says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You see, his discipline is one of obedience. He follows Christ's commands. It it's a race that we are to run with effort, but we cannot cut corners. I had a friend. Um, I had a friend who was a long distance runner in high school, and he worked really hard 
uh, he was not the, be- the most natural runner, but he worked really hard to get better, and he really, he really Im- improved quite a bit. And I remember in, it was his senior year, he hadn't made state in track. It was senior year, he was running the two, the two mile, it's not two mile, it, technically it's like a 3600 or whatever, but you know what I mean. He, he's running this race, and, and, um, and, he, and he comes in uh, just barely qualifying for state. And we're celebrating, and we're, you know, and I was, I was uh, doing that thing. You know, have you ever seen that where they, they, you get on the football field, and then you run from side to side, and you cheer them on both sides, you know? So I ran, a, I probably ran, you know, at least a, you know, 1,800 in that, that thing going back and forth. So I was pretty, anyway. So, so we're celebrating, and, and then over the PA, we find out, they announce, he stepped three times inside the line once. And if you step three times in a row, inside the center line, you're disqualified. Probably 5,000 steps of a race, and three of them were inside the line. And he, d- and he didn't get to go to state. In a race, in the race of gospel work, obedience matters, friends. And, uh, you know, the, the old adage is true. It takes you 20 years to build a reputation and one minute to destroy it, right? We've got to run inside the lines. We've got to run inside the lines. For the farmer, discipline means diligence. It's a hardworking farmer. But the flip side of it is we get to enjoy Christ's blessings. We get to enjoy his blessings. I, I, my, one of my, uh, I don't know if you guys watch the show Bluey. Anyone watch Bluey? Any Bluey watchers here? I love Bluey. All right. So I'm going to use Bluey as an illustration. So there's an episode where, uh, where, where Bandit finds uh, some money and uh, they go, uh, or um, not Bandit, Bingo finds the money. Bandit's the dad, right? And, and brings the money to, to Bandit, the dad, and uh, it says, oh, I found this money. I'm going to get some ice. Dad, take me to get some ice cream. And he's like, "Swoop, that's my money. And he's like, wait, no, you know. He's like, no, you got to work for You got to work for money. You can't just get it. You got to work for it. And, and they're like, no, nah, you know. And he goes, okay, okay, I'll take you to get some ice cream. And he stands up and he goes, boop, ragdoll. And he falls on the ground, right? And, you know, he's a ragdoll. And so they got it. They spend the whole episode is them trying to, to get, to physically get their dad uh, to, like, to the ice cream shop with the money to buy them ice cream. And his whole point is, you know, if you work for it, it tastes better. And so he's, you know, and they're pushing him around. And they got to get a skateboard. All this different stuff happens, right? Well, you know, they get there, and, and uh, I think it's Bluey, maybe, who gets her little ice cream pop or whatever. And, and then, you know, of course, there's that moment where she takes that first lick, and then, you know, explosion of flavor. And it really does taste better if you work hard for it, you know? And... You know, anyway, the, the reality is there, there is a truth to that. Like when we, we are applying ourselves to what God has called us to with diligence and God works in those things, man, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, Amanda does some gardening. Uh, I don't, uh, I can tell you that her cucumbers do taste better. But my, my, my guess is that if you go out there and water those cucumbers every day and then you get to eat them, 
it's like, oh man, like I helped grow this. Parents, it's hard work, right? It's hard work. And every day, you got crying kids, you got fighting kids, you got, you know, disciplining kids is discipline on you. Every day, you're working for something. And if you put the work in, it'll be all that much sweeter. It really will. All right, well, the soldier's outcome. We'll end here with the soldier's outcome. As we said, duty and discipline are drudgery if we have no vision. So what is the outcome of this? And do we have any hope that it's going to turn out for the Christian soldier? And Paul's answer here in these last, this last section in verses 8 to, to 13 is an emphatic yes. It's a, and in fact, he, he, his point is the Word of God that we teach, it's not bound. It's, it's unbound. It's powerful. And, and it's a threefold presentation that I want to uh, uh, show you here. First, he says, uh, there's a past proof. Remember Jesus Christ. The outcome Remember the outcome of Jesus' soldiering when he was on earth. And what was that outcome? Well, Christ couldn't be kept in the grave. The word in the flesh could not be bound by death even. His soul could not be kept in Hades. Christ was the ultimate Trojan horse, if you will. Satan thought he was bringing in to his little kingdom, his great trophy, and it turned out it was his demise. Up springs Christ to bind the strong man, to take his keys, to declare victory, and to lead his people in triumphant procession. As Jesus spoke to John himself in Revelation, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And notice Jesus speaks to John in the first century in the present tense. I have them now. Not I will have them. Not I will do this, but I have done it. His victory is today. And just to make that clear, Paul says, he says uh, something that might, we might just read over real quick. He says he's the offspring of David. What he's saying there is that Jesus is king. He's king right now. And then we have a present proof, the outcome of Paul's soldiering. Timothy might reply to this whole thing about Jesus, but, but look, it looks pretty bad. Things look pretty bad. Paul, you're in prison. Christians are pers being persecuted more and more. The church has all kinds of issues with false teaching and sin. People are turning away and deconstructing their faith. And I fear that my own church might be rejecting my leadership, right? Does any of this sound familiar? Any of it? Turns out we, we're, not, we're not facing anything new today. Not only does he say that Jesus is now king, but this kingship is not hypothetical. It's powerful. While Paul says that he is in chains, what does he say? The word of God is not bound. Paul endures in this work for the sake of the elect. And he gives us this 
uh, this trustworthy saying, but he, but he says, look, I, I endure all this for the sake of the elect and, and, and to the effect that, that, that when he gets arrested, you can imagine him thinking, not, not, oh no, it's lost. Now I'm arrested. Now my ministry is done. Rather, he's thinking, oh, I bet there's a prison guard there that's elect that needs to hear the gospel. I'm so, I'm so glad that my sovereign Lord has arrested me and brought me there so I can share the gospel with them. Because that's exactly what he does when he stands before the judges that he stands before, before the kings that he stands for. Every single one he assumes, you might just be elect. I need to share the gospel with you. Thank goodness God has me here. And so we have this future proof as well, the outcome of all faithful soldiering. And, and Paul puts it in this little uh, like poem, if you will. He says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. This is what Jesus told his disciples. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for me, you'll save it eternally. If you've died with Christ, you will be raised with him to the newness of life. And then he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. See, Paul has already told these, uh, this church in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that they're not only saved, but that they're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, it says. The picture in Revelation is of martyred believers reigning with Christ right now. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it, it says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that is not in the avoidance of suffering, but in the midst of enduring it. As Christ reigns, those who endure with him reign over all things. But then, but then there's a negative aspect to this. He says, if you deny him, you'll deny us. And this is not meant to produce some kind of obsessive self-reflection. I want you to understand this. It's not meant to produce some sort of obsessive self-reflection reflection leading us to like torment over, you know, that one time I could have said Jesus, but I didn't. And does that mean I'm lost forever? Did I deny him? That's not what Paul is trying to do here. And in fact, that would be the exact kind of thing that Paul is leading Timothy away from. Paul is saying, stop looking at your circumstances and start looking at Christ. But make no mistake, this is a clear warning. It's a clear warning. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But he finishes. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I believe the point here is this. Man's faithfulness takes nothing away from Jesus. When people deny Christ, that takes nothing away from Timothy, when, when, when you heard about Phygelus and you heard about Hermogenes, I want you to know that takes nothing away from God Nothing away from Christ, his victory. It takes nothing away from God's word. It takes nothing away from it. Christ is faithful. They are faithless. It doesn't diminish God's promises in the slightest. In fact, it only serves to establish them more because unfaithful, covenant-breaking people, Christ will deliver on his word to them as well. They will be judged. He will deny them if they deny him. You see, what I think that he's saying here is the word actually is bound in one way. The word is bound to his own word. He will do what he says every time. 
every time. And so in the work God has for us, we can move from despair to delight. We can move from slogging to singing. We can move from attrition to anticipation. We can move from frustration to celebration. We can move from embarrassment to excitement. The difference is in understanding the extent of what God has done in Christ and what, he, and what that actually means for us. The difference is in seeing that the Word is a weapon. The Word that you have, Christian, is a weapon, and it is a massive tactical advantage. A massive tactical advantage. And so, we sing songs like A Mighty Fortress, and we misunderstand because we assume it promotes a defensive position. I just need to get in the fortress. I just need to get in the fortress. It's mighty. It'll keep me. We camp on words like, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. This world is filled with devils that should threaten to undo us. And we think, well, I guess right now is just Satan's time. And we forget that there's more to the song. Because it continues. We will not fear. We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. To triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we will tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word is Christ, and it is in our mouths, and it is in our hearts, and we are with him. The gospel will prevail. It cannot be stopped. Satan cannot defend his own stronghold. Let me make it clear. Christ is reigning. The Spirit is working. The Word of God is unbound, and the gates of Satan's kingdom cannot stand against it. So friends, here's our charge. Onward, Christian soldiers. The word is unstoppable. Let's pray.